don't know if you've noticed this, but it seems to me that all children want to be grown up. I have two children. I have a daughter who just turned three, Samantha, a son who's a year and a half, Jack. And I think I can say this truthfully. My kids spend a majority of their time wishing that they were grown up, pretending to be grown up, or trying to act grown up. My daughter Sam spends much of her day wanting to dress up or dressing up, pretending to be a princess, putting on dresses and skirts and scarves and mommy's shoes. When she's pretending, I have to pretend along with her. No, daddy, I'm not Sam, I'm Queen Elsa. (laughs) My son Jack is the same. We were looking at a video this week of him as a nine-month-old, he couldn't even walk yet, saying his first word that was clear to us, he was trying to say a word, and it was a little baby toy teacup up to his ear and him saying, hello, (laughs) hello, pretending, laying there on the floor, not even able to walk yet, pretending to be on the phone like, like mommy and dad. And even now, he has tons of toys, but rather than wanting to play with his toys, all he wants to do is play with dad's stuff. My, especially my my computer desk. I walked into my room the other day to see him up on his tippy toes, his arms as high as he could reach them, looking around to see if anybody was seeing him, typing at my computer (laughs) as fast as he could. Kids want to be grown up. The interesting thing is, Often the opposite is true. Adults want to be children again. Grown-ups look at children often with jealousy. We can look at them with a sense of nostalgia, remembering another time when life was simpler, when all of the cares and responsibilities and burdens that come with adulthood hadn't arrived yet. Maybe you've heard or even said Two children don't grow up, never change, stay young, or as my grandmother always said, don't get old. In, in our passage of scripture this morning, King David actually models, he demonstrates for us a childlikeness that is proper for God's people. And what that means is that there are certain Traits that are characteristic of children that should characterize even adult Christians. There are childlike traits that Christians should imitate. In fact, in the passage that we heard this morning in Matthew 18, Scripture teaches us that even our eternal destiny depends on us becoming like children in some ways, especially there in humility. Now, we have to make a distinction between a childishness that should not characterize God's people and a childlikeness that should. Childishness is refusing to accept the responsibilities of your age and your place in life and acting like a child when, you, when your situation calls you to, to step up like a man or a woman. Don't think that the Bible is recommending a childish immaturity. 
but rather telling us that true spiritual maturity is demonstrated by a childlike relationship with God. True Christian maturity is demonstrated by a childlike relationship with God. Why? Because regardless of how old you get, you will always be a child in your relationship with God. We will always be children in our relationship with God. Or to put it another way, don't be too grown up in your relationship with God. My hope this morning is that we would be learning to be childlike with God in the right ways. It may mean unlearning some bad attitudes and habits and perspectives. It may mean relearning some that we've forgotten along the way. But I pray that we would be marked by three childlike traits from this passage this morning. And I'm going to give them to you. One for each verse. Number one, childlike humility. Number two, childlike contentment. And number three, childlike hope. Childlike humility, childlike contentment, and childlike hope. We are looking at the book of Psalms this morning. The book of Psalms is the songbook and prayer book of the nation of Israel. It is the book that God's people learn how to pray, how to relate to God, and how to sing to Him. We are in Psalm 131, which is one of the Psalms of Ascents. Psalms of Ascents are the songs that were sung by pilgrim Israelites as they were preparing themselves to worship God at the temple. These are songs that help us as we prepare to worship God. And I love Psalm 131. It may be my favorite psalm. Because of the intimate picture that it gives of the relationship we are to have with God. Let me read this psalm once again. And then we will spend some time looking at it. Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. I've been asking myself this question this week. How does a proud man preach a a sermon about humility? What allows me to stand here today knowing that I'm proud and yet still able to preach? Well, it's the knowledge that I don't preach myself, but God. I do not point you to myself, but to God's word, which is true. That is, for for me as a pastor and for us as elders, the freedom of expository preaching. We are not giving you man's thoughts but laying out for you God's word and laying out God's thoughts. Look at verse 1 as David demonstrates childlike humility. He says, My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. What is David doing in this psalm? He's praying. He's opening up and pouring out his heart 
to God. David is communicating to his Lord about the nature of his own relationship with God. We can eavesdrop on the, the prayer of King David to God. And who is this God that David is praying to? Who is this Lord there in verse 1? Well, if you're here and you're not a Christian, let me give you a quick introduction to who this God is. He is the one and only God, the creator of heaven and earth. And he tells us in his word that he is eternal, that he is self-existent and self-sufficient. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-present. The sovereign king who rules over the universe. God is not only great, and he is great, he's also good. He is holy, which means he's perfectly separate from sin and any impurity or blemish. He is a righteous judge, and he always judges with perfect justice. He's not only holy and just, he's also merciful and gracious, full of loving kindness toward his creatures. Even his creatures that have sinned and rebelled against him. And this loving God is, as the word is there, the Lord. The word there for Lord, probably written in your Bibles with all capitals, is the name that God gave to his people. It is the name he used for himself in Hebrew that signified the covenant relationship he had made with the nation of Israel. You may have heard it referred to as Yahweh or Jehovah. God, the Lord, the covenant-keeping God, makes lavish promises to his people. And then he keeps them, every one of them. This God is a promise-keeping God. How do we respond to such a God? Well, King David responds by expressing humility in verse 1. Did you see that? And how might we define humility from this text? A simple way of defining it is a right sense of who we are in relation to God. A right sense of who we are in relation to God. Humility is relative, that is, it's in relationship to another or to others. And here, humility is a right relation to God. And humility is the right response to God for two reasons. Number one, humility is the right response, number one, because we are creatures. It is right for us to put ourselves in submission to God because he is our creator. And it's right for us to accept our position as his creatures. Because we were created by him and for him. We were created by God to serve and to worship him forever. And as creatures, we are completely dependent on God for our lives and even for our very breath. This moment you are upheld by your creator God. Humility has always been the right response of God's creatures to him as creator. Even pre-fall. Satan, before he fell, Adam and Eve, before they fell, had every reason to be humble because they were created by God. They were creatures. However, since sin entered the world, there's a second reason for humility. 
The second reason is that we are sinners. That we, though we were created for God, have rebelled against God. And though our Creator God is good and perfect, we have turned against Him in mutiny. We are to be humble because we know what we deserve from this perfect judge. We deserve his eternal punishment, separation from him in hell for all eternity. The Bible teaches us that God created us perfect to obey him and worship him and serve him perfectly. But it says that we destroyed that original creation with our sin. We turned our backs on God. God would have been right to judge us and to close the book on humanity. But the amazing thing is God didn't do that. He didn't finish the story there. He hatched a plot, a plan to save sinners like you and me. And he did that by sending his son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. God become man to live a perfect life that we couldn't live and to die on the cross a death that our sins deserved. And he died in the place of any sinner that would humble themselves and come to God in repentance, turning away from our sin, and faith, trusting in what Christ has done to save us. And if any sinner would do that, if you, sinner, would do that this morning, God is full of mercy and loving kindness for you. He will forgive you of your sins. He will bring you back into this loving relationship that he created you for. King David expresses in this psalm humility. But it's interesting how he does it. He actually does it in the negative. He says, my heart is not lifted up. He says, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. In essence, he's saying, I'm not proud, God. Which means, in the process, he's actually describing for us the sin of pride. And look at how he describes it. His heart is not lifted up. His eyes are not raised too high. His mind is not occupied with things too great. So how do we define pride from this text? Well, pride is... An improper lifting up. It is elevating the self too high. Pride is placing yourself on a pedestal. Putting yourself on God's throne. And David says, in essence here in verse 1, God, in your presence I am not proud. Lord, I have not lifted myself too high in my relationship with you. Now, you may have wondered as you read this this week, how David could say such a thing. Sounds a bit proud, doesn't it? Almost like a boast, I'm not proud. I'm sure many of you have heard the the famous saying, humility is a strange thing. The minute you think you've got it, you've lost it. It's a good quote. I think it's pretty funny. I think I found it to be true often in my own life. However, that quote assumes that such a statement by David could never be possible. The quote assumes it would never be possible to be truly humble, recognize the fact, and still remain so. But like humility, pride is relative. Pride is relating ourselves wrongly to God and to others. And as long as our eyes are on ourselves or on others, we cannot be humble. 
But if we, like David, peel our eyes off of ourselves and off of others and truly behold God for who he is and his greatness, we may know true humility and even realize the fact that we are humble. Because that's what humility is. Recognizing who we are in God's presence. Let's look at each of the three ways he describes pride here. The first is a heart being lifted up. This language is almost exactly the same as the language used to describe the fall of Satan in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Those passages talk about Satan's fall from being an archangel, one of God's premier servants, to being Satan, the devil, the arch enemy of God. Ezekiel 28 says this, Your heart became proud. On account of your beauty. And you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. Isaiah 14 says this. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to death, to the far reaches of the pit. Pride is, first of all, a lifting up of the heart and putting our heart in the place of God. The second second way he describes it is the lifting up of the eyes. My eyes are not raised too high. Now, this isn't talking about raising our eyes to look at God. It's a lifting up of the eyes so that we can look down on other people. Proverbs 6, verses 16 and following says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And do you remember what the first one was? Haughty eyes or a proud look. Lifting our eyes and looking down on others, thinking that we are better than others. C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. The third way he describes this pride is the pride of the mind. I do not occupy myself. That is, I do not spend my time thinking about things that are too great and too marvelous for me. Pride of, of the mind, becoming preoccupied with things that are above our pay grade, things that are reserved for God and God alone to be concerned about. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. What that means is that there are things that we are to be thinking about and concerned about, wrapped up in, the things that he's revealed to us clearly. However, there is another category of things that we are not to spend our time thinking about, occupying ourselves with. And that is the secret things, the things that are too great and too marvelous for us. The best illustration of this is Job in the book of Job. Many of us love the book of Job and the example that Job is, and he is an example to us. 
But towards the end of the book of Job, something happens in Job's mind and heart as he begins to look at his circumstances and to listen to his friends who are blaming him for some great sin in his life, which clearly must be the reason he had to face so many trials. I'm being sarcastic there. And Job begins to think to himself, actually, I haven't done anything deserving of these trials. I haven't done anything so great that would deserve such horrible things. And then he begins to think to himself, if I could only have my day in court with God, I could be able to stand before God and show him that he's wrong. Prove to him that my life did not deserve what it is that I'm facing now. And how does God respond to Job's preoccupation with things that are too great and too marvelous for him? He shows up. And he spends four chapters laying out things that are too great and too marvelous for Job. Things that are too great and too marvelous for you or for me to spend our time thinking about. Or thinking that we could do better than God. And how does Job respond? He covers his mouth. He repents of his sin. And he says, woe is me. I spoke when I should have been silent. What I love about this text is that it says that there will always be things in this life that we will not understand on this side of eternity. And that's okay. Humility entrusts these things to the Lord. Takes the things that we don't understand, the things that are confusing, the things that hurt, the pain that is there. Rather than spending our time trying to sort it out with our mind, entrust those secret things to the Lord. And wait until heaven when the vision will be much more clear. Do not be concerned with things that are above your pay grade. Entrust them to the Lord. As we think about this sin of pride, I think there are at least three ways that we can see it creep up into our lives. And I'm picking three. There's lots more I could pick. The first is a sense of entitlement. A sense of entitlement that creeps up into our hearts. This might not be the first way that you think about pride, but it is still pride. Entitlement is the belief that you deserve something more than you have, something better than you have. What is it that you think that you deserve? What is that thing in your life that is frustrating you? That you believe, if I only had that thing, then I would be respected. Then I would be happy. What is that thing that somebody else has that you're jealous of? What is it that you go to God in prayer and tell Him that clearly He owes you? Entitlement is a symptom of a prideful heart. The second is... Comparison. Comparison. As I said, pride is relative. So comparison in our own minds and hearts is a symptom of pride. How do you look at others? How do you view others? Do you view others with envy? Do you desire the position they have or the possessions that they have? What is it that someone else has in your church, in your office, in your family, that you 
wish that you had, that you envy and covet? Or do you view others with scorn? Do you lift your eyes and look down on others, comparing yourself with others and assuming that you're clearly much better than that person? This comes from pride. The third is preoccupation. of entitlement, comparison, preoccupation. This is maybe the most subtle symptom of pride. Being preoccupied with yourself. Being preoccupied with yourself. How much time do you spend thinking about yourself and your own things? True humility shows itself not in a preoccupation with self, but in a preoccupation with God, as David is here. The humble Christian is wrapped up in his God. And because he knows a loving God is wrapped up even with others and the needs and concerns of others. One more quote from C.S. Lewis. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. And this humility that Christians are to have is not a false humility, which many of us use to put a good face on our pride. We pretend to be humble to hide how prideful we really are. Or we say things that sound humble, but at the same time we really want people to give us a little more of a pat on the back. How do we kill such pride in our hearts and lives? And how do we foster humility? Well, read God's word. It isn't by simply stopping focusing on ourselves that we will become humble. It is spending time with God, beholding this beautiful, majestic God and being wrapped up in him. Read good Christian books that help you to think better about who God is and his attributes. Let me give you three, quickly. Knowing God by J.I. Packer. The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. Or The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink. These are books that will help you consider this God. Help you be wrapped up in this majestic God. Another way is Spend time with Christians who have such a view of God and who encourage you with great thoughts of God, who remind you of the God that you serve. Even surround yourself with Christians who know you and who will get to know you and who will be willing to call you out when they see pride in your life. Some of the best ways that people have served me is by showing me where pride has shown up in my life. I'm thankful to them for it. Childlike humility is the right response to this great God. The second, verse 2, is childlike contentment. Childlike contentment. David says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Rather than being wrapped up in things too great and too marvelous for him, David says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. He, he uses a unique illustration to demonstrate this contentment. He compares himself with a little child with its mother, a weaned child. I've referred to the psalm this week as the breastfeeding psalm. What is a weaned child? That word wean is not one that we use very often. So let me explain it to you. 
Weaning is a breastfeeding concept. It is the process of transitioning a child from needing its mother's milk to drinking water and eating solid food only. And a weaned child is a child that has finished that weaning process, the child that is no longer breastfeeding. Now, why is David using the illustration of a weaned child? I think the idea of a breastfeeding child is a very beautiful picture. Why not that one? Let me explain this illustration from my own experience. I have two young kids. And up until a couple of months ago, one was not weaned and one was weaned. And let me explain the difference to you. In the morning, we would be woken up by the child that was not yet weaned, Jack, screaming at the top of his lungs as soon as he woke up. Screaming because he was hungry and demanding things from us that we had to give to him right away. Milk. Sam would wake up because she would hear the screaming, and rather than also screaming, she would simply come to one of us and put her arms up and just want to be held. The difference between a weaned child and a not weaned child is how they relate to their mother or their parent. The breastfeeding child screams, is fretful, is nervous, is afraid, and is demanding things from the parent, has needs that are on the forefront of its mind. A weaned child, when it wakes up, wants to be held, but not instantly because of things that it needs. Sam would still holds her arms up the second she wakes up and wants to be held, not because she instantly wants breakfast. No, she's able to calm and quiet her soul and her stomach. And she's able to come to mom or dad simply for the comfort of the relationship itself. She wants to be held because she wants to be comforted and protected and know that she has that parent, that mother, to take care of her. What David says is, I am like that weaned child that simply is content in the relationship that I have with my God. I do not come to you, God, screaming, demanding, but I come to you simply for the comfort of the knowledge of this relationship, this primary relationship that I have with my God. Charles Spurgeon told the story, I was once conversing with a very excellent old minister, and while we were talking about our attitude and feelings, he made the following confession. He said, when I read that passage in the psalm, my soul is even as a weaned child, I wished it were true of me. But I think I would have to make an alteration to one syllable, and then it would exactly describe me at times. My soul is even as a weaning rather than a weaned child, that is, in the process of of being weaned from the need for milk. For he said, I... I am afraid, I get worried, I get grumpy and anxious. And when the day is over, I do not feel that I've been in a calm, resigned, and trustful frame of mind nearly as I should desire. I want to reflect together as we seek to apply this verse on our prayer. Because our prayer lives give us a clear picture of the state of our souls regarding contentment. I'm going to ask three simple application questions. Number one, when do you pray? When do you pray? What is the motivation of your prayers? What is it that leads you to God? 
Do you come to God only when you need something from Him? Or does who God is and the nature of your relationship with Him draw you to prayer simply because of who this God is and how much you are wrapped up in Him and love Him? Now, I'm not saying that we don't cry out to God when we are in a place of difficulty. Of course we do that. But if that's the only time you come to God, you are not finding your contentment in God, but in the things that God can give you. Number two, how do you pray? Not only when do you pray, but how do you pray? What is the attitude of your prayers? When you speak to God, how do you speak to Him? Do you speak to Him with humility and with delight in Him and who He is? Or do you come to Him frustrated that He hasn't given you what you want yet? Now, this doesn't mean that you don't bring your request to God. Of course you do. Bring all of your requests to God, like children, Jesus tells us. But when you bring your requests to God, realize who you are praying to. A loving, merciful, and great Heavenly Father who loves to give good things to you. A loving Heavenly Father that you can trust even if He doesn't give you that thing that you want right now. He is a God who can be trusted and delighted in. Number three, about what do you pray? That is, what do you pray about? What is the content of your prayers? We try to model in our services the different kinds of prayers that God's people are to pray to God. simple way to remember them is ACTS, A-C-T-S. Four simple ways of praying to God. The first is adoration, A. Come to God and adore Him for who He is. Delight in His beauty and his wonderful attributes. Adoration. Number two, confession. C. Come to God and in humility realize who we are, weak creatures. Realize what we have done. We've sinned greatly against God and bring your sin to God for forgiveness. Adoration. Confession. Three, thanksgiving. The T of Acts. Thanksgiving. Not only realizing who God is and And understanding our sin, but look back at all it is that God has done for you up until this point and give thanks to Him. He is worthy of our thanks. And then, S, at the end, supplication. Yes, we do make requests of God. We should make requests of God. God wants to hear our cares and concerns, and He loves to answer our prayers. But often, our I'm afraid our prayers are more wrapped up in the stuff that we want from God and less wrapped up with God himself. Humility is the right response to God. Contentment in God is the proper state for those who have this God as their God. And number three, childlike hope. Childlike hope is the third trait from this psalm. Verse three, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth. And forevermore. King David has spent the first two verses in a personal prayer to God, reflecting on his own relationship with God. And the prayer is so intimate and personal, you almost forget that he's the king of Israel. Until now, he turns to his people as king and calls them, commands them to put their hope in this God, his God, their covenant keeping Lord. O Israel, 
hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. What is hope? It's a word in English that means a positive outlook or desire for good that may come in the future. So we may say with the English word hope, I hope you get that job you applied for. And we mean by hope in that context, I desire for you to have this thing, and yet I have no way of knowing whether or not it will happen. This may be part of the confusion we have about what this word means when we come to Scripture and see it there on the page. When God calls his people to hope in him, he isn't just telling them to have a positive outlook. Hope in the Bible is a fixed and certain confidence in God for the future. It is faith in God with eyes forward, eyes to the future. It is certain, hope is certain in Scripture because it is based on the sure and certain promises of God. Often in the Bible, faith speaks of our reliance on God in the present for today. So in general in Scripture, faith holds on to God for the present. In faith, we look back at what God has said and what God has done, and we trust Him for today. In hope, we track those promises that God has made to their future fulfillment. Hope trusts in God to keep his promises and looks to the future with confidence knowing that this covenant-keeping God will keep every promise even into eternity. Did you notice when it is that we are to hope in God? Today, this time, forth, and forevermore. O Israel, fix your hope on the Lord today and every day from now going forward until you enter the eternal life that he has promised to his people. The book of Psalms is Israel's songbook, but it's also the Messiah's songbook. These Psalms have to do with the Messiah, Jesus. Jesus told his disciples that all of the Old Testament scriptures were about him, and that includes this psalm. Jesus, when he was on this earth, sang this hymn, and he perfectly lived out the realities expressed in this psalm. David didn't. David was a man after God's own heart, and yet he too at times was guilty of pride and arrogance. He expresses his contentment here with God, but he was not always perfectly content. This is illustrated clearly in his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. David already had a wife of his own, wives of his own, and yet out of lust and greed, he took another man's wife and committed adultery with her. And then when he couldn't cover it up, he had the man murdered. And God disciplined David for his sins. Jesus is the only king, the only son of David, the only human that ever perfectly lived out this song. He Related to his father with perfect humility. Submitting himself to his father's will. Even to the cross. Jesus also found perfect contentment in his relationship with the father. He loved to retire and to spend hours in prayer and fellowship with his father. And Satan couldn't tempt him to forfeit his contentment in God for any of the delights of this world. And Jesus was characterized by perfect hope in God. Hebrews 5 tells us this. 
Hebrews 5 verse 7 says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who would save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who would obey him. Later in Hebrews 12, we are called to live our lives with hope, looking unto Jesus, because Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, with hope, looked at the joy that was set before him, eternity with his Father and with his people gathered with him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus perfectly hoped in God so that you, through his perfect life and sacrificial death, could have hope. We do not hope in our ability to be humble or to be content or to be hopeful. Only Christ is perfect in these things. But when we come to know the Savior, when he becomes our hope, we as his people begin to look like him. And the ways that we begin to look like him include childlike humility, childlike contentment, and childlike hope. Let us be like children in these ways as we relate to God together, Redeemer Church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I confess that my heart is lifted up in pride. My eyes are raised too high. I do concern myself with matters too great for me. Father, forgive me for my sins. And Father, work in me and in this congregation of your people childlike humility before you. A simple childlike contentment in you. And a simple childlike hope in you forever. We pray that we would be such children before you and before this watching world. May we demonstrate by our lives the kind of simple faith and hope that would be contagious. We pray that that many in this city would put their hope in you forevermore. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.